If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Rep Radio on time, on target. Very excited to have Stuart Stu Steinberg, author of This Is What Hell Looks Like, Life as a Bomb Disposal, specialist during the Vietnam War, on with us. If you're uh, not on YouTube, we're, we're going to video of this as well that you might be watching. And uh, I was going to get into your bio, but it's like every year from the Vietnam War till now, you've done so much. So I'm excited to to get into all of it with you. And I know jack is as well cool <laughs> um the the just the the resume that you sent me it's pretty amazing you know between being an eod serving the u.s army for five years and then getting a law degree specializing in capital murder as a criminal defense investigator from 95 to 2003 and then 2009 to 2010 working with the U.N. Office on Drugs and Crime as an advisor to the Afghan police officer, as in, uh, with the Afghan, Afghan border police, I should say, and training the Afghan border pers- police personnel in the conduct of counter-narcotics operations along the border of Iran. It's, it's a pretty uh, amazing resume, so uh, there's a lot to start with. And uh, I'm not sure where we should even start. Well, I, I mean, I think we should probably start, Stu, with, you know, um, going into the United States military and uh, this incident you mentioned in your biography of chemical weapons prior, bef- uh, prior to you even going over to Vietnam. I think that'd probably be a good place to start. Yeah, when I uh, <clears throat> graduated from EOD school, they um, sent me to this uh, dump in Utah called Dugway Proving Grounds. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, at, at that time, uh, Dugway was where we stockpiled um, uh, the vast majority of our uh, chemical and biological uh, weapons. And uh, this included um, like mustard rounds left over from World War I. Wow. Uh, and, uh, and a lot of uh, nerve gas rockets. And uh, <clears throat> one of our jobs uh, was... Uh, 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 checking these rockets for leakers, and there were a lot of them. And we would find the leakers and destroy them. Uh, so uh, it, it was uh, uh, it was an interesting uh, job. And then um, in uh, <clears throat> March of 1968, actually March the 13th, which happens to be my son's uh, birthday, uh, not 68, but uh, March the 13th, um, we, uh, accidentally nerve gassed a sheep ranch and, uh, with about a ton of sarin 
and um, you know, what happened was uh, they were uh, testing a new uh, 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 dispensing unit, and it malfunctioned, and uh, it ended up killing thousands of sheep and pretty much everything that walked, crawled, or flew uh, uh, in an area of about 40,000 acres. So you confirmed that it worked, though? Oh, yeah, it worked. (laughs) I mean, you know, um, and I think I mentioned this in the book, in the chapter about Dubway. Um, You know how you hear that, you know, cockroaches can survive uh, a nuclear blast? Well, they can't survive nerve gas because they have a central nervous system. So uh, it was fortunate that for whatever reason, and this happened on a Thursday, um, and the herders, for some reason, Thursday was their day off. So they were gone. Uh, but their horses, uh, their dogs, uh, all, all dead. And uh, after we cleaned this mess up, uh, there were actually three of us who <laughs> volunteered for Vietnam. Uh, <laughs> you saw enough? <laughs> yeah, I just figured, you know, kind of idiotically, actually, that, uh, you know, in Vietnam, at least you, you, you would hear the enemy coming, which, of course, turned out not to be the case. And uh, uh, so, yeah, I, I, I got out of there. I, I uh, wanted to ask, isn't this is this the famous uh, chemical weapons accident that Seymour Hirsch ended up writing about? And there's like a big expose on it. Yeah. And what was really interesting is that um, do you guys know who Jack Anderson was. Uh, name rings a bell, but bring us he, up. To he speed. was he was an investigative reporter for The Washington Post. Mm-hmm. And every year. Uh, on the anniversary of this event, he he would write something about it and how the government was covering it up. I mean, they covered it up uh, for, I don't know, 68, 78, 89, I don't know, maybe 30 years. Um, they denied that it had happened. And of course, uh, I mean, at one point, um, they had some guy who was claiming that um, it actually was the result of uh, overspraying of some kind of uh, uh, insecticide or something, you know. Uh, <laughs> and what was really sad about it was that um, they, uh, you know, tried to blame this on the F-4. The device was being flown by an F-4. They tried to blame it on the pilot. F-4 um, is a phantom, isn't it? Phantom. Yeah. Yeah. F-4 phantom. And, um, you know, when I look back on it now, I mean, the thing about Dugway, they tested these uh, weapon systems um, on live animals, mostly beagles and sheep and rabbits. Um, why they chose beagles, I don't know. Uh, but, uh, it, well, it was a really weird place. You know, it was out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, the back end of it actually butted up to the Bonneville Salt Flats. And, uh, you know, I, one of the things I was kind of looking forward to uh, while I was there was being able to watch the world land speed record runs. But I had to get out of there. <laughs> how when you say you were involved in the cleanup, I mean, what what does that mean? I, how do you even go about cleaning up a, a sarin gas accident? 
Well, mostly it was identifying uh, the area uh, that had been uh, contaminated. And um, what actually ended up happening was um, they ended up bringing in these Rome plows. Um, I think they may have been engineers, I'm not sure. And, and, uh, and they dug a huge pit. I mean, huge, like the size of a football field. <clears throat> and they basically scraped everything into this pit. And uh, in the same way that we used to destroy these um, nerve gas rockets, they filled the pit with tires, thousands and thousands and thousands of tires. And then um, we um, laid out charges, C4 tied all together with dead cord, white phosphorus grenades, <clears throat> and then soaked the whole thing in jet fuel. And then we set it off. And, uh, and, and after it burned out uh, and the pit had cooled off, they covered it up. They put a fence around it and uh, said no trespassing. And told one everyone it never happened. One of the interesting things that I learned <clears throat> when I was doing the research for my book was that this land was actually owned by the family of Orrin Hatch. Ah. Uh. Interesting. And so that yeah. probably helped them keep it quiet, too. Yeah. And they, they obviously, you know, they paid the, the, the sheep farmer a lot of money uh, to shut up, basically. And we were debriefed by these guys from the Department of Defense. And we're told, you know, we had to sign non-disclosure agreements and all this other crap. And uh, it was it was just another reason, you know, to get out of there. What do, you, what do you think about that now that, you know, we're decades later and you reflect back on it? Do you have any thoughts about, you know, say the legality of chemical weapons or the legality of testing them uh, or the moral, you know, ethical implications? I think, yeah, it's completely immoral. It's completely unethical uh, as far as I'm concerned. Um, why we still have these weapons. Um, obviously, we know uh, that the Russians uh, are using them. We know that. You know, because of the poisoning of the skirballs. Uh, yeah. It, 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 you know, what's going on in Syria? I mean, it, yeah. Well, yeah. It, they should all be gotten rid of. I mean, it's bad enough that, you know, we got enough nuclear weapons to destroy the world 5,000 times. You know, what do we need this stuff for? Do you think we need to maintain a, a, a chemical deterrent or should we take the, the high road on that and get rid of ours and, and just encourage the rest of the world to do the same? Yeah, that's a tough question. Um, hmm. You know, I don't know what the answer is. I mean, personally, I guess, uh, yeah, we should take the high road and get rid of them. I mean, you're going to have, you know, you, you, you're going to have uh, – countries out there or people out there who um, uh, um, aren't going to care what we do. Um, you know, the bad actors, like, for instance, the Syrians. ISIS. Uh, and ISIS. Or the yeah. Syrian government. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, whether we have a stockpile or not is not going to stop them from using these weapons for bad purposes. And now that you've told that story, it actually does begin to make sense of why a young man would willingly volunteer to go to the Vietnam War <laughs> in Southeast Asia at the time. Well, you know, 
I kind of believe that everything happens for a reason. And the truth of the matter is, if that event hadn't happened, I mean, I probably would have eventually come down on orders for Vietnam anyway. But volunteering to go, um, and then I extended my tour, so I was actually in Vietnam for 18 months. Um, uh, I met the best men I've ever known in my life, ever. And uh, I'm on the board of directors of the National EOD Association. We just had our convention in Scottsdale. And so every year, you know, I get to see most of these guys um, uh, that I served with. Um, most of the guys I served with uh, on the first team I was on are deceased now. There, there's not many of us left. Um, um, most of them um, have passed away from uh, herbicide-related diseases. Um, but the third team I was on, uh, the 287th Ordnance Detachment, um, up in Northern I Corps, you know, about 50 clicks from the DMZ, there was something special about that unit. First of all, we were the only team in Vietnam that never lost a man. Wow. I mean, we had people, you know, wounded, of course, um, you know, and uh, one guy that lost a foot. But uh, yeah, the other teams I was on uh, all lost people. So. Yeah, uh, you were talking about the guys that you served with that are still here. Jack made the connection with you through Mike Vining, so I think our audience would love to hear how you how you met Mike because such a legend well, Mike, in the community. Uh, Mike and I were actually in Vietnam at the same time. He was on a team down in the Delta, ninety ninth, and uh, uh, we never met uh, uh, while I was there. Um, you know, in my book, I talk about these three attacks on this ammo dump that the team I was on uh, for the first 10 months I was there uh, was responsible for. And a lot of EOD guys came in from all over the country to help us clean it up. Uh, Mike wasn't one of them. So I actually met Mike, um, I think the first uh, NAT EODA convention I went to was in 2004, it was in Colorado Springs. And that's where I met Mike. And of course his story is I mean, yeah. you know, for crying out loud. Now, he was the first EOD guy that went to Delta mm -hmm. and, of course, was involved in the fiasco in the desert trying to rescue the hostages. Um, he's just a great guy, great guy. And my wife and his wife, Donna, spent a lot of time together down in Scottsdale. And uh, they're just, just wonderful people, wonderful people. Just a, a brief segue, because you mentioned your book. I just want to um, let the listeners know the title of the book is This is What Hell Looks Like, A Life as a Bomb Disposal Specialist During the Vietnam War. And uh, you go look for it on Amazon. It's uh, available now. Um, so can we talk a little bit about, you know, when you first landed in, in Vietnam and what your experience was like as a young EOD technician? Yeah, um, we uh, flew out of Oakland, uh, uh, you know, stopped in Hawaii, and then in Okinawa, and then <clears throat> we landed in Vietnam at, at uh, Benoit Air Base, and then they trucked us over to Long Bin, uh, which was kind of where uh, all the big Army units were and personnel and whatnot. And, uh, you know, they started, you know, lined us all up, and they started calling out names, and there was, and I went with another guy from Dubway, uh, a guy named Tom Brown, and they called us out and uh, told us to, go stand over wherever. And, uh, and a clerk from our control unit ended up picking us up and, 
<clears throat> we stopped at this um, Air Force uh, enlisted men's club. It was like being in the States. Uh, I mean, you would never know there was a war going on um, and uh, had some burgers and whatnot. And then uh, we flew out uh, from Benoit. Tom went to the 191st uh, in uh, uh, Cameron Bay, and I went to the 184th. Um, he flew out on a C-130. I flew out on a Chinook. I know we landed somewhere to refuel, but I, I just don't remember where. But um, one of the things I talk about in the book was, you know, wondering when the hell I was going to get a weapon. Because, uh, you know, uh, the Chinook I was on uh, was a lot of guys from the 173rd Airborne Brigade. And, of course, they were all armed. And, man, I was really jealous, you know, that these guys had guns and I didn't because I'm thinking, you know, we're, we're in a helicopter here. You know, it's not like we're flying really fast. And, you know, what if we get shot down? And You, you had know, to wait to get to your unit before you were Yeah, I had to wait to get to the unit, yeah, before I ended up with a weapon. <laughs> yeah. That sucks. <laughs> yeah, it did. You know, and, of course, you know, back then, unlike now, you know, People went to Vietnam individually. You didn't go with a unit. Now, you know, the EOD teams, when they originally came over, you know, they came over as a unit. Um, but after that, it was, you know, when your tour was up, you got replaced by someone and, you know, it kind of started all over again. And so what kind of missions were you getting once you once you arrived at your unit, and you finally got your M16 uh, what was the EOD mission like? What were the type of operations that you guys participated in? Well, the basic, you know, thing about EOD is to identify, render safe, uh, and and uh, destroy um, all forms of explosive ordnance. You know, IEDs and uh, uh, dud two thousand pound bombs. I mean, you know, uh, bad ammunition. Uh, now the the first team I was on, the 184th, we had we had two man on site teams uh, where we ran uh, pretty much constant combat operations with units of the 173rd Airborne Brigade and the 4th Infantry Division. <coughs> oh, excuse me. And uh, so we went on a lot of combat assaults. Um, you know, we went into hot LZs and took off from hot LZs and um, uh, it could be anything from, you know, uh, a, a long range recon team would be out uh, uh, doing an assessment after an airstrike. And the, the thing about airstrikes, particularly the you know, B-52 strikes, um, there were always gonna be duds. Um, so, you know, these long range recon teams would stumble on a dud who knows, 500-pounder, 750,000-pounder, 2,000-pounder, and then they would call us. So we would get inserted. Sometimes, you know, we had to hump, you know, four, five, six, seven clicks to get to, you know, where the uh, ordinance was. And and then, you know, we'd do our thing. You know, we'd blow them. And, of course, then that told the enemy that we were there. So, um, yeah. So, <laughs> so you had to hightail it out of there pretty fast. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes what would end up happening is you'd get socked in because of the weather. You couldn't get a bird out. So then we'd end up like being the 
you know, the eighth and ninth members of this long range recon team. And, you know, we'd, we'd be grunts for the rest of the day and the night. And then, you know, hopefully get out the next morning. These were uh warp teams or uh recon? Lurps, long yeah. range recon yeah, teams. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes a teams, you know, special mm-hmm. forces guys. Um, we did one, uh, I did one gig when I was state, I was TDY in the Delta for a couple of months and we did one gig with a team of Navy SEALs. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it, it was the best job I've ever had, you know, despite the danger and everything and, you know, getting my ass blown up in the ammo dump and, you know, everything else. It just, you know, well, tell us about the ammo dump story then. How did, how did that happen? Docking. Yeah, I, I commented on I your Motorhead shirt before uh, we recorded. I love Dokken. The new album? The, uh, the, uh, I'm th- are you thinking of the live album? Beast in, in, Beast in the East, yeah. Well, here's the crazy – we're getting on to Dokken now. It's okay. Vietnam, but I actually went all the way to South Dakota to see them play that really? reunion show. Yeah, and I hung out with a guy who we had on the podcast before, um, Matt Vierkant. And, yeah, it was a great time. I mean, Don's voice is definitely not at its peak. Seeing George Lynch, though, on guitar, I mean, incredible. That guy is – there's there's something wrong with that guy. I mean, you, you shouldn't be able to play like that. He's, he's incredible, <laughs> man. He's a monster. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad you noticed that, though, that right when I saw the Motorhead shirt, yeah. I was like – I think there's a big cross section of guys on this show who are just like metalheads. <laughs> metalheads, yeah, yeah, I think I think that's probably true. Uh, what did you ask me, Jack? Oh, uh, the ammo dump story. Oh yeah. Well, on uh, February the 23rd, March 11th, 12th, and March the 23rd, 1969, uh, the VC got into the Quinion ammo dump and blew it up. And during all three attacks. They never saw a single VC. Uh, uh, they got in and out of the dump without being seen. Holy shit. Uh, it was, uh, yeah. And every time the dump got hit, <clears throat> they would then increase the amount of security. And by the time the dump got blown up the third time on March the 23rd, 1969, I think, you know, between the two field forces lerps and Korean Marines and, uh, and, uh, uh, some, uh, Vietnamese army Rangers, they had nine or 10 ambushes set up around outside the dump. They, 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 they never caught anybody <clears throat> on one occasion. Uh, they did, uh, hit a, a VC patrol, but they weren't sappers. They were just happened to be a patrol. Um, and, uh, yeah, so. How the hell were they getting in and out? Did you guys ever figure that out? Well, yeah. Two, two times they actually came through the wire and were not seen. The second, the, the uh, third time, <clears throat> they actually tunneled under a creek and came up in a location in the ammo dump that was a blind spot to the guard towers. Holy shit. And not only that, they actually had roving patrols with dogs inside the dump by the third attack. And, you know, what was really irritating about it was they blew it up. We started, and of course, all three times we were in the dump while 
entire pads of, you know, 81 millimeter mortars, eight inch rounds, 175s were detonating. And how we never lost anyone, it's just one of those miraculous things that, you know, you just can't comprehend. Now the ammo battalion, uh, the 184th Ordnance Battalion, they did lose three guys during the third attack. Um, and uh, a, a kind of sick thing about that was every week in the Army Times, they would publish a list of people who were killed in action or missing or whatever the week before. So the week after the dump went up the third time, those three guys who were vaporized basically because they were on a pad of eight inch rounds that went up, they were listed as uh, missing in action, presumed dead. <laughs> because they didn't have the remains. Yeah, they, they found the ring finger of Captain Allen, his Citadel ring. Wow. So I guess they thought the rest of him was in Des Moines or something. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I remember, I, I mean, a friend of mine was telling me this story about how uh, in Afghanistan they're out on patrol and uh, the guy behind him, get, they f- think he stepped on a pressure plate, explosives went off, and the dude was just vaporized. And he was telling me how surreal it was that one second there's a human being there, the next second the guy's gone like it's a fucking magic trick or something. Yeah. And uh, they found the dude's uh, embitter radio uh, like two deployments later, um, you know, a kilometer away from where the explosion took place. Yeah, Afghanistan was a trip. Yeah, yeah. You know, I saw on your uh, on your resume that you spent some time over there too. We'll definitely get into that. Yeah. So your role on the on that was to clean up the mess, I guess. Again. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, at the ammo dump, and there are some pictures in the book of the devastation. Um, uh, you know, where um, there's a uh, there was a pad of uh, 105 rounds that just you were like ankle deep in, you know, unexploded rounds and shrapnel and, you know, whatever. Um, can, you, so, can you describe for people a little bit about, like, as far as the size of this facility, how much UXO we're talking about? Uh, this dump uh, originally, before the first attack, had 19,000 tons of ordnance. <laughs> and after the third <laughs> attack, uh, 11,000 tons had been destroyed. Holy shit. And we ended up uh, blowing a lot of the damaged ordnance and and dumping hundreds of tons, thousands of tons of it off the coast of Vietnam into the South China Sea. I'm sure that that area where we dumped this stuff is completely dead now. Yeah. You know, because we did dump a lot of chemical weapons, particularly white phosphorus rounds. Oh, my God. It's crazy. So, I, I mean, this this uh, this facility must have been like a major logistical hub for the entire Vietnam War. I think it was War. the second largest dump in Vietnam. Yeah. I think the only one bigger was the Air Force dump in Da Nang. This is, this is like an interesting case study as far as like a, if you were to study like guerrilla warfare, unconventional warfare or something like that, that they were able to sneak in there three times. Yeah. Um <laughs> Yeah, I have to wonder, you know, going back to something you said earlier, how do you balance out being a guy who is proud of your service, is still working with, you know, EOD Veterans Association? And then at the same time, as you talked about earlier, have ethical concerns with, you know, what type of weapons we were using? 
you're gonna have to say that again. I'm just wondering, how do you balance out between being a guy who's obviously, and, and as you should be, proud of your service, writing a book, working with other EOD veterans, and uh, at the same time, as you expressed earlier, you have ethical concerns with the type of weapons we were using? Well, I don't, I, I don't see any, uh, I don't see any problem with those two things. Um, uh, uh, the guys I served with, I mean, I sort of, I sort of saw us or see us as having been existential doctors. Um, every time we disarmed or destroyed, uh, you know, bad ordnance or a booby trap or something like that, we saved lives. Uh, one of the events that I talk about in the book was where, uh, we disarmed a bouncing Betty that had been uh, put in the floor under some boards of a school, a school for Christ's sake. Um, and the reason the VC did that was because this village had allowed a Marine cap team, a combined action platoon team to operate and run ambushes out of their village. Um, and so because of that, the VC decided to punish them. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, so, yeah. And every time we took care of, like, for instance, you know, even, you know, a 500 pound, you know, airdrop bomb, <clears throat> you know, if we blew it up, the VC weren't sawing it in half and steaming out the explosives and making homemade bombs with it. Yeah, and, and it's worth pointing out, as I know you're well aware of, Stuart, more so than I am, that EOD technicians continue to do a lot of work in places like Laos and Burma, Cambodia, defusing these bombs that, you know, uh, kids are playing around them. You know, the, the, yeah. these, uh, UXO is just spread across the countryside over there. It's, it's terrible in Southeast Asia. Yeah. And, and yet you, you were you know, crazy enough to extend your, your deployment to Vietnam for a, a, what, another six months. Yeah. Well, what, what made you want to stay? I mean, was it because you, you, uh, you had these great uh, guys you worked with? Yeah, it was, you know, the, the men that I served with and, um, the adrenaline. I mean, you know, the thought of coming back to the States, uh, and being on a stateside team seemed like kind of a boring proposition. <clears throat> and I would have extended again, except that I was an E5 with a lot of time in grade, and they told me I had to go back to school for nuclear weapons. So, you know, I would have stayed longer. And eventually you did have to come home, of course, um, what, what was that like? Was there any thoughts about staying in the military or was after Vietnam you were kind of... Yeah, there was. Um, I ended up on a team in Ohio uh, and we were located on an old arsenal. <clears throat> and um, uh, I had re-enlisted once already. And yeah, I was thinking of making it a career. Um, and uh, uh they actually, uh, the career counselor, I had to go down to Fort Campbell, uh, actually talked to me about re-enlisting and um, uh, uh, the possibility of me going to the prep school for West Point, which at that time was at uh, Fort Belvoir, Virginia. And I thought about that. 
Um, they offered me E6. And then I decided that, well, they were doing a lot of drug testing back then. And I was smoking weed. And uh, I knew that sooner or later, you know, I was going to have a bad piss test. And uh, and then I uh, found out that I could get out sooner if I was going back to school. So that's what I did. And I mean, you didn't just go to school. You went to uh, George uh, Georgetown, went to law school, right? Well, I actually got my law degree at the time. It was called the Franklin Pierce Law Center in Concord, New Hampshire. It's now the University of New Hampshire School of Law. And uh, <clears throat> during my the third year of law school, my uh, constitutional law professor and the dean of the law school had submitted my name <clears throat> for this graduate teaching fellowship at Georgetown, and I ended up getting that. So I taught at Georgetown in the clinical program for two years, and <clears throat> instead of paying us more money, they let us work on advanced law degrees. Uh, the, old ad, the old adjunct uh, hijinks that universities. Yeah, so I ended hold. up with a master's in law in administrative law, yeah. <laughs> so wh- why law? I mean, was this uh, an effort to get uh, marijuana legalized <laughs> or? No. Um, uh, how it actually happened is actually pretty funny. Um, I had my BA and um, I was living with a bunch of people, including the woman I eventually ended up marrying uh, in in D.C. <clears throat> and uh, two, <coughs> excuse me, two of our roommates were law students. <coughs> and we were getting high one night and one of them said, oh, you should take the law school aptitude test and go to law school. Well, it was the next day. <laughs> and I said, uh, aren't you supposed to take a course or something like that? And they said, yeah, just go. Somebody won't show up and you'll be able to get in. And that's what happened. Um, I took the test and uh, got pretty high scores. Um, And I ended up actually picking Franklin Pierce because they offered me a scholarship for my first year. I think I may have been their first Vietnam veteran. Um, Interesting. So, Yeah. And then from 1995 to 2003, you specialized in capital murder as a criminal defense investigator. I'm yeah. wondering how you got into that. Well, we were living in Michigan, and um, I had uh, hooked up with another uh, Vietnam vet, a guy who was a recon Marine. And Steve and I uh, had uh, a contract with the Michigan Indigent Defense Services to do investigations uh, in uh, for defense lawyers who were handling homicide cases in most of northern Michigan. And so when we left in uh, September of 95, uh, we ended up in Oregon out here in the high desert. Uh, and mostly because we had friends that had a place uh, near where I live now in Madras, Oregon, uh, uh, that they only used a couple times a year for skiing or golf or whatnot. And they said, well, you guys can stay there, just pay the utilities. And, um, and so, uh, when I first got here, I ended up actually working, uh, for, uh, a lawyer in Bend, uh, doing legal research and stuff like that. And 
somehow during that process, I met a criminal defense attorney from Madras. <clears throat> I went to work for him, uh, mostly doing, you know, felony stuff, you know, you know misdemeanors, whatever. And <clears throat> I ended up uh, with a partner. Uh, and uh, uh, we ended up, one of our cases took us over to Corvallis, <clears throat> where Oregon State is. And uh, we had this wild uh, sex crimes case. And uh, and basically, because of our investigation, uh, the defendant was found not guilty. <clears throat> and an attorney uh, who was part of the Capitol Defenders uh, uh had been in the courtroom the day, you know, the jury came in with the not guilty verdicts. And he basically asked us if we'd be interested in working on capital cases. And we said, sure. So I ended up, we ended up actually with an office over there and we were living over there part time, going back and forth over the mountains. Um, they were, they were complicated and very complex cases. Uh, I'm sure. And I'm, you know, glad to say that, you know, uh, None of my capital clients was sentenced to death. Can you talk about some of those cases now that they've been, you know, prosecuted and everything? Well, I guess the one, you know, that I remember the most would be the last one that I worked on. Um, this was a case where my client and his buddy killed this guy who was, uh, uh, some kind of mukti muck with the local newspaper. And uh, it turned out that this guy had been abusing uh, young boys. And the co-defendant was one of those boys. Holy shit. So, so he and my client uh, went to this guy's house. <clears throat> and the co-defendant confronted the guy and told him if he didn't give him some money, and uh, any pictures or videos or whatnot that he had of them, um, he was going to go to the cops. And so he attacked the kid. And my guy, who was waiting in the garage, heard the ruckus, ran in. And uh, and this guy was huge, uh, the defense, the uh, victim. He was, I think, 6'7 or 6'8 and weighed about 350 pounds. <clears throat> my guy uh, uh, was maybe 6'2" and probably weighed 225, but he was buff. I mean, this guy was a weightlifter. And he ended up uh, dragging this guy off of the other kid and ended up stabbing him something, I don't know, 65 times, something like that. <clears throat> so uh, uh, how we won this case was when we finally got into the crime scene, which was about a week after the cops had done their thing, <clears throat> uh, the other investigator and I, because each defendant had their own investigator, and, and Mike and I became really good friends because of this case. <clears throat> uh, we were searching different parts of the house, and the state's case had always been that this was about a robbery. And uh, But we noticed that things like the guy's wallet, which had cash in it, was still on the dresser. And there were all kinds of uh, expensive items uh, around the house um, that hadn't been taken. Uh, cameras and video gear and whatnot. Anyway, so I'm out in the garage 
and I'm kind of doing my thing. You know, I'm doing a 360 one way and then a 360 the other way. <clears throat> and then I looked up and I saw a trap door in the ceiling of the garage. So I pull out the uh, the return on the search warrant and I'm looking for trap door, trap door, trap door. There's nothing there. <clears throat> so I got a ladder. I pulled it down, got up into this attic over the garage, turned on my flashlight and discovered this guy's pedophilia cache. Holy shit. Videos, uh, young boys, underwear, uh, dildos. I mean, what the fuck? Yeah. So, you know, we unloaded all this stuff and the state, when we notified him about it, <clears throat> they tried to force us to turn it all over to them. And of course, our lawyers told the judge that ain't happening. And the judge basically said, yeah, you're right. That's not happening. You know, the cops should have found this stuff. So this dude was a serial predator. I mean, he, he had, I mean, was there any idea how many victims there were? Dozens. Oh, my God. Yeah. And there were like, I don't know, 100 and something uh, videos of uh, mostly uh, uh, homosexual stuff, you know, men on men, men on boys. And there were eight millimeter videos, too. He had been filming, uh, you know, uh, uh, some of his encounters. Was this dude like a a school teacher? stuff. Oh, huh? Was this guy like a school teacher or a soccer coach or something? No, he was like the classified editor for the Albany, uh, Oregon uh, newspaper. It was a fairly good sized paper for that part of Oregon. And he was just grabbing kids off the streets or something? No, uh, he was meeting them uh, like by being a, a football coach yeah, uh, or a little league go. coach, stuff like that. And some of them were street kids too. Wow. You, you know what I'm wondering? You, you mentioned he, it, it ended up <clears throat> that uh, 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 once the evidence came in, you know, our evidence, uh, it, the jury uh, ended up finding my guy not guilty of everything, including stealing the victim's car. Good. Well, what I was going to say, I'm, I'm wondering, though, is you spoke earlier about the adrenaline rush of being in Vietnam as an EOD. Are you just a guy who's addicted to that adrenaline rush, whether it's, you know, dismantling bombs or taking down predators like this? Yeah, Um, I think that's fair to say. Um, uh, The capital work was uh, uh, very exciting and often dangerous uh, because a lot of times the people we were looking for weren't much better than the guy we were defending. you know, uh, one of the things about a capital case in Oregon is there are two trials. First, there's the guilt or innocence trial, and then there's the death penalty trial. So you would try to track down people who knew your guy, and hopefully, you know, they would be able to tell you something good, you know, something that would save your client's life. Because you only needed one juror to hold out. Going back to the thing I mentioned about, you know, ethical concerns with weapons, did you, did you have any ethical concerns with that job? Nope. Nope. Yeah, I carry weapons. Sounds like you're taking down some dirt bags in this case. Uh, pretty straightforward. Yeah. But, I mean, you said you were, the work was dangerous. I mean, I imagine you came across, what, like uh, outlaw biker gangs and stuff like that? Yeah. Actually, I did have a case that involved outlaw bikers. Um, 
And uh, uh, this was up in uh, Clatsop County, <clears throat> up in the uh, 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 northwest corner of Oregon. And uh, this guy, this was very interesting, uh, was a stone cold white supremacist, neo-Nazi, whatever. And uh, I remember when I first met him and he said something, he said, Steinberg, are you Jewish? I said, yeah. <laughs> and I and he said, huh, that's interesting. And I said, well, dude, I'm going to do what I can to save your life. And we did. Wow. Uh, we did save his life. Um, so, you know, maybe that had some effect on his inherent anti-Semitism. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, and uh, but, but he and I actually ended up getting along really well. That's great. That reminds me of, you know, if you've ever seen American History X, like where these guys yeah. are jailed together, you know, like a black guy being in the same cell as a white supremacist. And at some point, like you're going to have to communicate with this guy. You're going to have to find something that you could get along on. And I think yeah. sometimes out of that uh, lack of of being able to find an alternative, you realize, hey, we're not all that different. Yeah. Yeah, well, at that point, it's uh, it, it literally is kind of a do or die moment. Yeah, um, and then from there, as we mentioned earlier, two thousand nine to two thousand ten, working for the UN Office on Drugs and Crime as an advisor to the Afghan Border Police, training the APB personnel in the conduct of counter narcotics operations along yeah. the border of, of Iran. Uh, another high adrenaline job. <laughs> yeah. And how that happened was, um, uh, one of my good friends who's a retired, uh, uh, army major ranger, um, multiple tours in the Balkans war, um, the first Gulf war and then Afghanistan. <clears throat> when Tony retired, um, after being in Afghanistan for about 18 months, um, he uh, took over this program that UNODC was running where uh, they were training the Afghan border police and doing counter narcotics uh, operations. And uh, at that time I was working as a veterans claims officer for a group called Central Oregon Veterans Outreach, uh, strictly a volunteer kind of thing. And uh, I'm in the office one day and my cell phone rings and I'm looking at it and it's got like 19 numbers kind of going, well, what the hell is this? And it was Tony. And he says, um, I need you to come to Afghanistan. And I said, why? He said, well, they keep sending me people who don't want to do the job. Um, they would do the classwork and then they were, they would not, um, they wouldn't go out on operations, um, cause it was dangerous. And they were a bunch of chicken shits. <laughs> and, uh, so, you know, I talked it over with my wife and my son and they said, okay. And, uh, and I went. So what did the job involve then? You, you went out there and, and <laughs> trained them and then you had to go out into the field with well, these guys. We, uh, I taught courses in improvised explosive devices, ordinance identification, tactical convoy movement and searches of people, places and things. Um, and then, we would help them develop intelligence. And one of the ways we did that was by going out uh, into basically the desert and meeting with the 
sure as the councils of these nomadic tribes people. And we would, because they were very concerned that a lot of their young men were getting involved in drug trafficking because of what they were getting paid to run these drugs over the border into Iran. And uh, and what we would do is we would find out, you know, what they needed, you know, a well, better cell phone service, and we would try to get that stuff to them. In one case, we delivered 60 metric tons of food supplies uh, in this one district that was really in bad shape uh, food-wise. And by doing that, then people would give us good intelligence. And then we would help the ABP, uh, you know, plan the interdiction operation and, you know, we'd go out with them and uh, stop the bad guys and seize the drugs and, you know. This is an interesting topic uh, I wanted to mention with you because you have this um, service from uh, Vietnam to Afghanistan. And I wanted to know if you have any observations about improvised explosive devices between the two conflicts and if they've well, changed, if they've They evolved. became a lot more sophisticated in mm-hmm. Afghanistan. <clears throat> I ended up actually discerning a device that, unfortunately, I figured out how to discern it uh, before picking it up. Because I eventually found out, you know, when I sent uh, technical intelligence stuff uh, back to the hazardous devices school at Redstone Arsenal, uh, that it hadn't any <clears throat> an anti-lift device, um, very sophisticated, and all of the parts inside this little box, about you know, this big, uh, came from Radio Shack. And that was that the trigger mechanism. Yeah. The detonator. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so they had like fail safes built into them and like you said, anti-tampering devices. Yep. Yep. Who do you, how do you think they learned to, to do all this stuff? I mean, uh, I've been to Afghanistan, um, but in a different region, I mean, they're, it's pretty bronze age out there, you know? I mean, where do you think they were acquiring some They were being knowledge? trained in Iran about 60 clicks over the border from uh, Islam Kalah which was the border crossing uh, up in the Northwest. <clears throat> we knew that camp was there. Why we didn't bomb it is beyond me. Uh, you know, I, they didn't want to upset the Iranians. I don't know what the deal was. Uh, this is also, uh, you know, there was another place in the same area in Iran where they were making EFPs, the explosively foreign penetrators. And these were just killing people left and right. And uh, this was like the IRGC. It was like the Iranian government that was training them to do this. Uh, Yeah. And, of course, that was completely at odds with the Iranians' position on on narcotics. Right. Um, Because at the same time, their counter-narcotics guys, uh, over the years, at least by the time I got there, they had lost a couple of thousand uh, n- narcotics cops in uh, gunfights and whatever, you know, with the people that were, you know, making these devices and smuggling the drugs over the border. And every- nothing happens in Iran where the IRGC is not involved, especially if it involves money. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, because at least my understanding of it is, you know, let's let's take our own government by, for example, like the CIA, if they were to run a covert operation, 
U.S. taxpayers would fund that covert operation through official channels, right, official governmental channels that fund it. I've been told that with Iran, with the IRGC or Quds Force or one of those, that they will, say, they will approve a covert operation and then the Iranian government will tell that unit, okay, now fund it. Like you have to find funding. And maybe, yeah. that, maybe that's through trafficking drugs. Maybe that's Could through um, maritime shipping, through some other illicit business to fund that operation that they've yeah. been assigned. Yeah, it could be. I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I don't either. I'm, I'm just speculating in this case as far yeah. as what may have been happening. You know, in the overall scheme of things, I mean, we didn't even put a dent in the problem during the time I was there. Um, you know, we probably seized several hundred metric tons um, of, you know, either opium or heroin. Excuse me. And... Um, but at, the, it, 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 at this point, 2009-10, I think, you know, they were manufacturing something like eight or 9,000 metric tons uh, a year. So what we took care of uh, was basically just scratching the surface. But I, I just figured that every, every kilo of this stuff that we kept out of the system meant that maybe somebody's kid wasn't overdosing and dying. Yeah. Hey, before we uh, wrap things up here, any uh, last story that you could maybe give us from This Is What Hell Looks Like? Uh, people on the show love to hear those great war stories, and I know there's a lot in the book. Well, <clears throat> the first chapter uh, uh, is it, it, about 101st uh, <clears throat> base called Fire Support Base Rifle, and... Um, uh, it got overrun, and uh, and it's where the title of the book came from. When my partner and I were overflying the base, um, you know the, the destruction, the carnage. I mean, it was right there in your face. Um, and uh, this was a small outpost, <clears throat> maybe uh, you know uh, a company of uh, 101st guys, an artillery unit, and some uh, Vietnamese army guys, uh, probably not more than 200 people. They got hit by a reinforced regiment. Um, and uh, as we were flying over it, and I turned to Paul and I said, dude, this is what hell looks like. And that's where the title of the book came from. I know a it lot was, of our audience is going to pick it up. Huh? I know a lot of our audience is going to want to pick it up. Yeah, it it was um, it was a, a, a weird event because the actual title of that chapter is, um, I, if I remember it right, is fire support base rifle. The day it was raining dead, um, and what that relates to is what they did with the bodies of the dead NBA soldiers, is they basically put them all in a sling and flew them out over the jungle and dumped them from the air, which is a war crime. That's wild. Yeah. Yeah. It's difficult to imagine. I mean, there were uh, three different gunfights that broke out while we were there, including as we were landing. Um, I mean, as soon as we got on the ground, we were in the middle of a pitch battle. Uh, A patrol that had gone out of the perimeter had gotten hit by an ambush. Uh, And uh, and then during the rest of the day, um, uh, there were two more. Uh, events like that 
one of our patrols had gone out and gotten hit. Um, so it was, uh, yeah, it was something. Well, let me ask you in one more question. What brought you full circle in, in a sense to come back and decide that you wanted to write a book about I was the all same this. thing? Yeah. Um, to, you know, reflect back on your, you know, pretty extensive career and, and write about all these things. Hmm. Well, um, I felt like I had something to say in the process of going from actually starting to work on it until publication took took about 10 years. I had actually started writing it differently, much differently than the way it's ended up now. And I got about maybe halfway through it. And one day I was reading it and I was thinking, Oh, man, this stinks. I don't like this. And I literally shit canned it. Um, I don't even have a copy of it. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I started over. <clears throat> and I was fortunate that um, I found uh, a lot of historical stuff at the National Archives. Um, um, uh, daily incident logs of the teams I was on, unusual incident reports like the one I wrote up about rifle uh, and uh, after action reports uh, from, uh, you know, the daily journals, daily staff journals for infantry units that we were out with. Um, and uh, I, and it, it was also kind of a um, it, it was also, I think, a catharsis for me, you know, being able to, you know, say what I had to say and um, it kind of like, um, I guess, uh, I felt better afterwards. In the process of doing that research for your book, uh, I mean, really, you're researching your own history and your own life. I mean, were there any things you discovered unexpected or things about operations that you were like, whoa, I didn't know that? Yeah, there's a chapter in the book called uh, uh, LZ Sally, The Battle Raged All Around Us. And when I recovered the unusual incident report about this particular event, uh, uh, where uh, my CEO and I had gone out with a pink team from the 101st, like an arrow rifle platoon, uh, a Chinook had gotten hit, uh, flying ammo into a remote base, and had jettisoned uh, a slang load of unconventional ordnance, uh, 155 rounds that when they were fired, opened up and little bomblets came out. Like cluster munitions? Uh, cluster bombs, yeah. And, of course, these are really dangerous items. Um, and uh, long and short of it was, <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> we end up setting the shot after gathering up all this crap. And it was me, my CO, the platoon leader, and his RTO. And he had sent the rest of the pink team back to secure the LZ. And right when we're getting ready to pull the shot, all of a sudden, we're in the middle of a gun battle. Um, and we were actually behind this huge pile of ordnance firing back at the enemy. And, uh, uh, you know, with everything we had and um, and uh, and they they broke off contact. We pulled the shot. We haul ass down the trail and we get down the trail and we can hear somewhere up ahead of us about a half a click or whatever the 
pink team, the rest of the pink team, they get ambushed. So now there's this other gun battle we're running into. And you can't and retreat we, back to the, the charge no, you just pulled. No, we not go back because the shot was cooking off. <laughs> uh, Holy know. shit. So we eventually, you know, they were able to stave off uh, this ambush. And, um, uh, and we ended up getting extracted. And the shot went clean. And uh, so I'm reading this report. <clears throat> I have no memory at that time. No memory of this event having occurred. So I called up my former CEO, Andy Breland, who unfortunately has passed away. And I said, Andy, I'm going to read you something. So I read him this page and a half long thing. And he says, I don't remember that. And I said, dude, you wrote it. (laughs) And this supports my theory, which I refer to as Kelly Bundy brain. You know, from uh, Married with Children? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, the brain is only capable of handling so much shit. Yeah. And at one point, at some point, you get to the place where your brain is full. So the next thing that you get or whatever that you're going to retain means that you got to get rid of something else. So, you know, I'm guessing that's what happened. I think it's just like something to do with evolutionary biology that you're so overwhelmed that your brain decides what to focus yeah. on to get yeah. you out of the immediate situation. Yeah. I mean, even to a you know totally different extent here, but I always think about, you know, now with technology, with cell phones, with how little we have to memorize. I mean, how many people's numbers do you have memorized? I, I Maybe can, three? I can remember my home phone yeah. number from when I was a little kid, and we had rotary phones yeah. still. But but uh, everybody remembers, like, at least if, you know, you're our age I, or, I or older, like Stu, <coughs> when, you know, you know, you had a crush on some girl and you got her number in, <laughs> you know, like middle school before. You got to remember those digits. You, yeah. would, you would remember those. And it would be, you know, now I... I how many times have you and I said, what's the bathroom my, code again, which is yeah. four digits, yeah. so we can't remember My it. son and I talk at least, you know, once a week, twice a week. I don't, I couldn't tell you his phone number. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, I, I agree with your theory. I think it, it works in other ways. But I think for what you're talking about, it also probably has to do with the traumatic experience as well. Well, sure. I'm sure, yeah. So it's one more time I want to read the uh, the title of the book, of uh, Stu's, Stu's book. It's called This Is What Hell Looks Like, Life as a Bomb Disposal Specialist During the Vietnam War. And uh, Stu, this has been super interesting. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. I, and I think we'll be able to talk some more at some point. So really appreciate yeah, you coming well, on. Yeah, you'd be more than welcome. Come on anytime you want and we'll make it happen. All right. Sounds awesome. good. Well, Hopefully, I'll have this pinched nerve taken care of by then. Yeah, absolutely. Hope yeah. you're all right uh, and hanging in there. And I'll put this up tomorrow and send it over to you. All right, great. Awesome. Thanks so much, Stu. All right, yeah. guys. Thanks, Stu. Have a nice afternoon. It. Thank you. See you. Take care. That was great, Ooh. man. A great suggestion from Mike Vining. Yeah. Yeah, no, that was super interesting. You know, I haven't read Stu's book yet, so I didn't really know much of what to expect other than that he was an EOD tech in Vietnam. Um, those are some incredible stories though. Yeah. But even just looking at his bio before reading the book, I mean, there's, there's so much there. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, and then even the stories after being an EOD were pretty insane. Yeah. The, uh, you know, basically the working as a, uh, sorry, 
working as a uh, criminal defense investigator for capital murder cases. Pretty insane. Um, I do have some emails I want to get to. Before I do, I want to talk about Crate Club. Jack and I were talking about earlier, the video is up of, uh, you know, things being sent out. So I know there was a bit of a delay there, but now we have everything being sent out and they're doing an awesome job. So the uh, long anticipated collaboration watch with NFW watches, that's being sent out in the next premium crate. We have different tiers of membership depending on how prepared you want to be and gift options are available as well. Scott Whitner has been talking to me about all the great stuff that we have coming as the new year is approaching uh, pretty soon, really. And it's a lot of custom products in 2019. And it's gear handpicked for you. Um, and, you know, it's a club for men, by men. And that's what we're doing. You can check that all out at CrateClub.us. Once again, that's CrateClub.us. Scott Whitner's doing an awesome job. You guys have heard him on the show before. Former Marine, editor of the Loadout Room, loadoutroom.com. Now, for your dog owners, you're going to love this. We've partnered with Kuna. Kuna has a team of trained canine handlers picking out a box for your dog every month of healthy treats and training aids. It's custom built for your dog's size and age as well. The products are U.S. sourced, all natural, and they not only promote a healthy diet, but also promote being active with your dog. So it doesn't matter what type of dog you have. They have something for it. That's Kuna.dog. It's efficient for you. Your dog is going to appreciate it as well, of course. And that's spelled C-U-N-A dot D-O-G. Visit it now. Sign up. Um, and then as a reminder, you can check out the Spec Ops channel, specopschannel.com. Training cell is on there. Um, also, the inside the team rooms that we've done, whether it's the Navy SEAL, Army Rangers, cut from the same cloth, those are all up on there. Specopschannel.com. Take advantage of a limited-time offer of a subscription for only $4.99 a month. And we also have the app, and we have the app now for SoftRep Radio, which Chris did an awesome job on. So check out SoftRepRadio.com. Check out the SoftRep Radio app. That's available now if you have an iPhone. I know the Android is going to be up in pretty much no time. Um, very cool. But I want to get into emails because we had a few really good ones. Sorry, I'm a little congested today. Don't know why, but here we go. What are you saying? It's the weather moving in. Yeah, man. probably. Um, all right, I'll go with this shorter one first. This is from Sean Haste. Uh, this is from Sean from Atlanta. I don't want to full name him unless he wants to. But uh, Sean says, hey, guys, I was wondering if someone could explain some of the similarities and differences between MACV SOG and the Phoenix program versus modern units like Omega Teams and Task Force 88. Uh, I'm sure Jack has a really good answer for this one. So, yeah, the difference between MACV SOG and the Phoenix program versus modern units like Omega Teams and Task Force 88. Pretty to the point. Well, yeah, okay. It's a short question, but, I mean, that's a, a really elaborate answer. Um, okay, so back during the Vietnam War, you had MACV SOG, which was a Military Assistance Command Vietnam Studies and Observations Group, which uh, was a endeavor that saw American Green Berets partnered up with um, – you know, one or two Green Berets partnered up with uh, four or five, maybe six uh, Montagnards. I believe there was also Chinese Nung mercenaries in the fold, and they would go across the fence, so to speak, into Laos and Cambodia and North Vietnam. And their primary function was to do reconnaissance operations. They also did things like sabotage, diversions. Um, there's some psychological operations run um, 
ambushes. They they uh, did uh, prisoner snatches or attempted prisoner snatches um, to take people alive for intelligence value. There's all sorts of different stuff they did. Um, it's very direct action, kind of hands on, um, either di- direct action or reconnaissance. Uh, the Phoenix program was a little different. Now, as I recall, it was also a joint endeavor with the CIA. Um, and what had happened, the, the Phoenix program was more focused in South Vietnam because the Viet Cong had established a shadow government in South Vietnam so that you had this, uh, the, the actual official government, but then you had the secret Viet Cong communist government. And the Phoenix program was an attempt to neutralize that shadow government um, in, in a counterinsurgency effort. Um, some people have decried the Phoenix program as this like uh, criminal assassination unit. Um, I mean, oh, wh- whatever you want to say. I mean, I, how the hell are you going to deal with a communist shadow government? I mean, you kind of have to go out and whack some of these guys. I mean, it is what it is. Um, now, by comparison to that, uh, he asks about Omega teams and Task Force 88, which is more of our contemporary modern war on terror uh, time frame. Task Force 88 was just one of the many names given to the task forces, the special Joint Special Operations Task Force um, that existed in uh, Iraq. And, you know, we, can, we continue to have one in Afghanistan. Um, I was a part of one of these task forces. Um, it, it combines... Um, you know, SEAL Team 6, Delta Force, Rangers, um, some special forces elements are brought into it and some other different special mission units are all brought into the fold. And, um, you know, primarily we were in the business of capturing and killing high value targets. So in that sense, I I suppose you could draw some parallels to some of the programs that existed in Vietnam. Although there's there's so many differences too, dictated by the way the technology has evolved institutionally and structurally, how the military has changed since the 1960s and early 70s when Vietnam came to a close. Um, what did I say? Uh, uh, terrain, uh, structure, and, and then the technologies itself of course, has evolved. There's no such thing as a cell phone during Vietnam. Now, so the, the signals intercepts and everything else has dramatically changed. The way we're um, finding, fixing, and finishing targets has changed dramatically since the Vietnam War. Um, the other thing he asks about is Omega. Um, the Omega program, it, it's called something else now, but that is a CIA endeavor. And the way that worked and continues to work is it's a CIA program that sees active duty military personnel seconded to the auspices of the central intelligence agency. Um, so you will have, uh, usually it's been seal team six members or Rangers who have been seconded to this program. And what they do is the Omega program specifically targeted foreign fighters in Afghanistan. So these Arabs that come in from the Gulf states or Iranians, whoever it is, foreign fighters that come into Afghanistan, Omega would target them quite specifically. And the military personnel, I mean, the Omega teams were um, contractors a lot of times, CIA contractors. But then these military personnel were seconded to them primarily so they can call in air support for for a CIA element because a CIA guy cannot call in um, airstrikes, but now you have military personnel on the Omega team. They can call in airstrikes. Um, there was an article in the New York times, uh, which is a very, um, 
mind bending article to read because it's it's like one of those things like the CIA wants you to know something so they leak it to the New York Times. And the article, the way it's written, is really weird. But what they were saying is that under the Trump administration, Omega has been um, had their focus changed from just going after foreign fighters to going after um, the Taliban, the the indigenous. Um, you know, guerrilla fighters, insurgents of Afghanistan and going after not just foreign fighters, but the actual Taliban um, and how, how that's working out. I, I'm actually not sure off the top of my head, but that's kind of where we're at now. So there are similarities and there are differences between all of these units um, and how they work, the legal framework, um, what the missions are. And um, I, again, I think a lot has changed between these elements from Vietnam to today because of uh, military structure, uh, because of the technology, and because one war was fought in the jungle and the other was fought in the desert and in the cities. So th- there are some pretty big differences. Um, that's a lot of inf- information. Like that, that yeah, great answer. That, that's a fucking thesis paper right there. <laughs> like you could write your PhD uh, dissertation on that subject. Jack Murphy dropping knowledge. But that's that's the long and short of it. You know. Cool. All right. Um, I like this one. This one's a little longer, but it did make me laugh. This is from Jack White. Uh, Ian and Jack. First off, I-, I love this. It's refreshing to get some quality news mixed with comedy. Rather than listening to the Bukaki, the mainstream media feeds my generation. And I have a feeling this audience knows what that means. If not, I I'm not going to explain uh, that is, word. Google is your friend, folks. Yeah, but not, not safe for work. I will leave it at that. <laughs> um, second, for a while now, I've been inching towards joining the military. Whether it be the Army, Navy, or Marines, I cannot decide where I would best fit. I would like some clear advice on what the pros think Y'all being the pros, I'm certainly not a pro, maybe Jack. I am married with a five-month-old son. I'm in shape, just built like a shit brick house, built to move heavyweight. Thus, I have been a multi-time state powerlifter. That's pretty cool. I'm able to get my stamina above par to meet the majority of requirements. I'm just caught between sitting down with the wife and taking the next step or constantly being unsatisfied with a regular 12-hour-a-day job. I know I want a, uh, a... To serve a purpose larger than myself, I have a great job and a comfortable life, but I constantly seek more gratification from my work. My goal, if I am to plunge into this world, is to to spend uh, whatever time necessary to put myself way beyond the physical standard and quality for special forces. I'm sufficiently educated and level-headed enough to learn most anything. Any advice on what uh, may make the choices and transformations easier and the path uh, have a little more clarity. And then he writes, you guys are the shit. Always blow the Joe Rogan experience out of the water. That's a pretty high compliment. I don't know if I agree with that because um, <laughs> yeah. I love Joe Rogan. Uh, no, but this guy I... seems uh, interesting. At the same time, I'm going to say, has a pretty high opinion of himself, but I like it. Yeah, I, I mean. <laughs> He's like, I'm tough. I can learn fucking anything. What do I do? Oh, well, self-confidence is a good start. Yes, I agree. Um yeah, people ask me this kind of question all the time, and I mean, there's no real answer because it, it depends on you as a person. Like, people ask, you know, should I be Force Recon or a Navy SEAL? I, I mean, I don't know. It, it depends on you. Um, I, I think the question you really have to answer is, what do you want to do? Um, you know, once you know what you want to do, then you have a much better idea of what you want to do in the military or what branch you want to go into. Um, you know, do you want to, do, do you like, do you like to swim? 
Oh, if not, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't, don't be, be a seal. Be a you know, <laughs> it's just I, I'm not trying to be a smart ass, but like, do you want to go overseas and work with far, in foreign cultures with foreign people? And special forces is probably a good option for you. Even um, though it's funny, Rob O'Neill has said on the show he could barely swim before he became a seal. And then sometimes you have um, guys who join for really weird, bizarre reasons, and it ends up working out. I mean, Drago has said before on the podcast that he signed up to be in the army as you you know, just coming into America. Then saw the movie Navy Seals with Charlie Sheen and said, "I want to do that," and then changed. Yeah, I mean, you have to figure out what it is you want to do. I think for this dude, um, he has a wife already, a wife and a kid, and uh, and a job. I mean, I'd encourage him to think very carefully about what he wants to do. Um, if you want to go and join special forces or something like that, it, it takes uh, 110%, so to speak. Well, maybe not 110%. It takes 100% effort. Like, you're, you're kind of all in. And, you, you're like, psychologically, you have to be all in. It's not something you can half-ass. Um, and, and when you have a wife and kid, you're in, like, a totally different world. Um, and I'm not saying you can't do it or you shouldn't do it. I'm just saying you have to think that over really carefully, especially. Lights go on. Do you want to, um, you know, you're going to be in training a lot. You're going to be deployed a lot. Um, you know, and with that in mind, maybe you can serve your country um, in another job that doesn't require you to be away from home so much, but you're still serving in some capacity. Um, but you still get to be with your wife and kid. I mean, that's all stuff you really, I, I'd really encourage anybody in that situation to think carefully about, um, and, and not make a hasty decision. I'm not telling you not to, I'm just saying you need to think about that real hard and, and discuss it with your family. Um, I was a young single guy when I did it. So, I mean, who cares, you know, I'd run myself into the ground. Um, but now, you know, I'm a little bit older, um, I have a wife, I have a kid, like I, I can scarcely imagine doing it all, over again. Um, and it makes me have that much more respect for some of my teammates who were away from their kids. I mean, some of them had like three, four, five kids and they're away from home for like six months at a time. I mean, that's fucking crazy. Yeah. And it makes you, it makes me appreciate now the sacrifice that a lot of our soldiers make. I mean, I, I don't think I made a sacrifice. I was having fun. I was there because I wanted to be. But, um, you know, a lot of these other guys spending so much time away from their family, I mean, that's really hard, and I have that much more respect for them. Um, you know, that is a sacrifice. Now, now, that, now that I'm older, I can understand the sacrifice part a little bit more. Yeah, good answer. Um, send those emails. I get questions all the time on Twitter and all that. Send them to softrep.radio at softrep.com. Uh, two other pieces of news to get into. The 60 Minutes interview with Trump he almost hinted at Mattis no longer being a part of the administration when asked about it. So Alex Hollings wrote a piece for the news rep about this called The Man Without Party. Trump calls Defense Secretary James Mattis kind of a Democrat in hint of departure. Um, after months of rumors that Defense Secretary James Mattis may be the next high-profile departure from the Trump administration, President Trump himself added fuel to the fire over the weekend, calling the former Marine general in air quotes, kind of a Democrat, and suggesting that Mattis may soon be moving on. Uh, so that was from 60 Minutes. I know that there was, there was a much larger context to the interview. I didn't watch the full interview. I know you read the transcript. But that was the big bombshell of the interview. And I don't think that is something Trump would say 
unless they're, you know, because I know he added in, we get along great, you know, he's a good guy, but I don't think he would add this weird um, jab of kind of a Democrat yeah. unless the guy was looking to leave or was being sent out. It's a, it's a super weird, strange, unprofessional thing to say, like, I, I, but I mean, this is this is an administration like no other, where like he sells out and undermines his own administration. And also, in to be fair, it's like what does kind of a Democrat mean in the case of James Mattis? Because yeah, what does that mean? Mattis is a guy that any time the media has tried to get him to play politics, he has said, "Look, I'm in charge of war. I'm the defense secretary." I don't want to get into all of this. So he's a guy who's done his best, I think, to be completely apolitical. There's been a few things he's said that he's against uh, enhanced interrogation, um, his stance on the idea of transgenders in the military. He's said a few different things. But I'd, I'd say he's a guy more than anyone else in the administration who does not play politics. So I don't know what kind yeah. of a Democrat Well, means. I mean, it's it's being secretary of defense is inherently a political position. You're a political appointee. Um, but yeah, he has tried to stay apolitical, I think, to the best of his ability as far as staying above the partisan politics. You know, he sees himself as someone who executes defense policy, yeah. um, not somebody who wants to muck around um, with the with the political nonsense in D.C. Um, yeah, I, I think Trump is he's just laying the groundwork with this kind of bullshit um, so that he can push Mattis out of the administration um, I, I think that Trump kind of is afraid of Mattis in a, in a sense because the guy has credibility um, and that doesn't make him look good by comparison. And uh, I think John Bolton wants Trump at, or I'm sorry, I think Bolton wants Mattis out yeah. because he wants to push for us to go and do Iran and, and topple the regime there. And Mattis is one of those guys who's he's pragmatic, he's smart and he's like pumping the brakes like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, we've seen this shit go down in Iraq. We've seen it go down in Libya. We've seen it go down in Syria. Um, why the hell do we want to do that in Iran? I think a replacement of Mattis, um, of Bolton to Mattis's position, would be unpopular for people who aren't necessarily the biggest Trump supporters but like Mattis. And then even people who are Trump supporters, because I think, I've said it on the podcast before, I think Bolton is looked at as an, a Republican establishment guy. And people who voted for Trump voted for him because he was a departure. When do we drain the swamp? Yeah, he we're was, waiting. I do feel he was a departure from, uh, you know, from the political establishment. And I, and the, the one of the biggest examples I could think of, whether you love or hate the guy, Steve Bannon, there's no one else on that stage, whether it was like Marco Rubio or Jeb Bush, who would have appointed Steve Bannon to a position. Steve ba Bannon, to me, was as... Um, anti-establishment as they came and a guy like mattis i think was a departure from the establishment as opposed to a guy like bolton and now we're bringing in these guys who are seen as a part of the you know long-standing republican establishment right they're they're pushing trump where the, you know the, the system is so much bigger than any one person and and trump is being pushed in certain directions and, and i mean I'm not trying to defend Trump, but I mean, the, the system, like I said, the system is big. The power wants to do what power wants to do. And I think Trump is the kind of guy who, if Bolton comes to him and is like, hey, do this, it'll make you look tough. I think Trump just probably nods and said, yeah, yeah, do that. 
You know, I don't think he has the wherewithal. And you can see through the 60 Minutes interview, I mean, it's just like like this total rambling, nonsensical garbage I, I read shit. the beginning. I saw the stuff about climate change. I saw you, that. You read that. And I, and I mean, it's hard to talk to Trump supporters about it because they're like, oh, he's playing 4D chess. You know, he, he's doing he's he's moving the chess pieces around and you're just, you know, not smart enough to see it. You know, we're, we're all awed by his brilliance. Um, or, uh, you know, Trump is just playing a character on television. This isn't who he really is. And it's like, well, yeah, that's one thesis or, or the other is that he really is as dumb as he appears in these interviews and how, how, and why are we going to make continuously make excuses for him when he comes off sounding like a complete moron and he's unable to speak intelligently on, you know, hardly any subject. You know, you ask him about NATO. I, I know about NATO. I know a lot about NATO. It keeps like saying, like, okay, you say you know about NATO, like, but you can't speak to it on at, at length. I mean, do you even know what that acronym stands for? I think he knows that. I, I don't know <laughs> if he does or not, which is scary. Um, so, I mean, this is this is who he is. I mean, I, I think he's just very easy to manipulate. Um, he has thin skin. He has a shallow ego, and I mean, that's not a good combination in, in a president, especially when you have sharks in the water circling like uh john bolton and uh you know they're going to maneuver the more pragmatic mature personalities like james mattis out of the administration the only time i saw mattis and trump publicly butt heads that i could remember that was um you know that we all heard about was when trump made a statement on twitter about transgenders in the military yeah. and mattis well, came out and said uh, you know he hasn't consulted with me it, about it, it wasn't even i don't really see it as butting heads as much as it was just like trump saying stuff on twitter but dod hadn't re- received any like policy changes or policy memos or anything so they're kind of like uh what <laughs> you know yeah i mean you're kind of being caught with your pants down again and uh and, you know, that leaves, you know, people like Madison in the lurch because now they have to respond to tweets, you know, and say, like, well, I haven't heard anything. Yeah. And then the other piece of news I know you wanted to bring up, there's this BuzzFeed article that's going around regarding mercenaries. Yeah. In Yemen. That's a pretty good scoop that uh, that this dude at BuzzFeed got. If you want to pull up the article real yeah, quick. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll look it up. I didn't have um, it I, I read, I read it, through it this morning, and I, I really need to go through and read it again um, in detail. Yeah, it was a good scoop they got. It was about um, it's about this Israeli cat who um, talked the UAE into giving his firm a job, um, and they were going into uh, Yemen uh, to do assassination missions. the The, the journalist's name is uh, Aram Rostin. Uh, I don't know the guy, but hey, looks like he did some good work here. He really uh, nailed this story down. Um, and you know, so these firm hired, you know, special forces guys, uh, a dev group guy, a couple seals, sounds like a one Delta guy and a bunch of French foreign legionnaires. And the whole fucking thing was like amateur hour frontwards to back. I mean, like they show up at the hotel to fly over there and, uh, like the dudes are all wearing fatigues and shit walking around the hotel. And I'm like, Oh my God. And the whole thing was just like, it's like a clusterfuck. Like they claimed that they actually did some successful assassinations. Um, there's one that was botched. They definitely attempted one that was botched. Um, it's just some of the quotes this guy got out of some of the, some of these, uh, some of these special operations veterans. I mean, I'm like, how in the world would you say that to a journalist, you idiot? 
the whole thing is just like a case study and and like how not to do it <laughs> yeah and i mean it's like some hogan hogan's heroes type shit um and uh, i i mean I wanted to bring this up because, well, it's an interesting story. Th- this this article actually, it's basically the plot of my third novel that I published like maybe four years ago now. Direct action and, and the plot Don't of the buy it. shameless plug, shameless plug. <laughs> the the plot of the book was um, it's about a group of former SEAL Team Six guys who are contracted to go to the Middle East and uh, and kill. Um, not just terrorists, but kill people who are involved in the Arab Spring, like pro-democracy movements, political people. Um, and, and so it's like a rogue Merc operation. And, and that's exactly what happened here. You have a bunch of misfits and weirdos um, that were hired by this firm uh, to go to the Middle East and kill. I mean, they're, they're, we don't even know, and that's a, a main subject in the article, is how do you know these people you're targeting are terrorists? Some of them are just probably people who fell out of favor with the royal family. Uh, some of them are, um, you know, political people. And <laughs> so it's like, it, it's really like the novel I wrote coming to life in some ways. It's kind of creepy. Um, and I remember, I remember years ago, I had an interview with uh, another author and uh, someone who was a member of the intelligence community, J.T. Patton. And I was on his podcast, and we were talking about my book. And uh, and I was telling him, I was like, you know, there's a lot of real things in this novel, a lot of real incidents, a lot of um, real facts that I bled into it. But the actual plot of the book, this notion that these there's these renegade former soft guys running around the Middle East killing people, that's bullshit. I made that plot up. Uh, it's a work of fiction, and I'd be shocked if it turned out to be true. And now today, I like I wo- I like roll over in bed and open my cell phone, and uh, some friends had sent me this article, like several different people, and like I pull it open, and, st- and I'm still laying in bed reading it, and I'm like, holy fuck! <laughs> and it's a really in depth, very in depth article. I haven't read the whole thing. This yeah, is it is in depth. Um, and you know, this is uh again, this is a it's a total like amateur hour deal. It, it just reminds me of like you know one of these Robert De Niro movies. Like, it, it should serve as a warning. Like you he, you feel the heat around the corner, you need to walk. You just turn away and walk. And if I was recruited for something like this, and I'm in a hotel room, and my secret black ops. Uh, Merc assassination unit shows up and they're like wearing cry precision pants and like grunt style t-shirts, bro. That is the heat. Okay. You turn around, you walk your happy ass out that fucking door because this is amateur hour shit. There is no fucking way any of any of our guys should be involved in bullshit like this. Like you want to go and do cool stuff. You know, you go to JSOC, uh, you go through the recruitment process, become a CIA case officer, go do that kind of shit. Um, I have talked friends at, well, I've had people try to rope me into like bullshit mercenary stuff before. I've also had friends of mine who have told me about stuff they're thinking about jumping on. Like one, one friend came to me uh, uh, years ago and was like, oh, yeah, Jack, I'm talking to this, uh, this firm. Uh, they want me to smuggle guns into this African country and like go assassinate somebody. It has something to do with like gold mines or something like that. And I was like, stop, stop, stop. Okay, they want you to smuggle guns from America into Africa fucking think about this nine nine times out of ten what you're dealing with right now is an fbi sting and the second you move a weapon you're going to fucking federal fucking prison think about what you're doing here like you got to be smart like you get out of the military and all these guys they have no idea what's 
legal or not legal a lot of times, or they're jumping on board with stuff that they really shouldn't be without thinking it through. Um, it goes back to that article I wrote about Tiger Swan. It's like, look, if, if somebody is giving you a uh, a contract, you're you know a, a, a sergeant that just came out of Ranger Battalion or a chief that just came out of a SEAL team, maybe you should take that contract to an attorney and have them review it. And that's about keeping your ass out of the fire because the people you're working for, they don't give a fuck about you and they will hang you out to dry in a second. And even on the off chance that this is like some sort of like CIA cutout or something like that. I mean, here's what you look. The nature of cutouts is that they're designed to be burned. Like the second something goes sideways, whoever's behind it is just going to walk. They're going to turn and walk. And when some reporter calls up the CIA and is like, oh, hey, uh, did you guys ever do work with XYZ private military company? The CIA is going to be like, no, click, done. And that's it. I mean, that is the nature of a cutout. And it's nothing personal. That's the nature of deniability, right? (laughs) So I I just want to say this to, you know, Young Rangers, young SEALs, uh, young Green Berets getting out of the service. Do not get involved in this stupid, petty bullshit with this wannabe operator nonsense. And I know you're, you're looking at these pictures on Instagram yeah. about how you're a fucking Ronin warrior. And you're looking at operator is fuck nation. And it's telling you about doing hood rat shit and goon shit overseas. No, that's fucking gay. All right. I know you're not supposed to use gay as a pejorative term. I got it. But let's just like real talk for a moment here. Like, don't be fucking stupid, guys. Come on. It's not worth going to jail. All right. It's not worth dying over some stupid shit. You're working for some fucking amateur who thinks he's going to cash in big. The guy who ran this whole thing, it says in the article now he's he's doing like some vape cannabis uh company in california now like that's the kind of shit you're you're dealing with here don't do it man go use your gi bill go to school do something normal if you want to go and do cool shit man like like i said apply to the cia apply uh you know if you're in the military go take the long walk uh go to delta force it's a good unit professional you know go be go be a green beret whatever the fuck it is but don't get involved in this stupid amateur shit don't do it and like, I'm, I'm tired of it. And I'm tired of seeing like good guys get hemmed up and they'll even come to you. Some of these companies will come to you and they'll pretend like they're working, you know, we're, we're doing, we're drafting up some report for, uh, for James Mattis and Pompeo. So go overseas and collect all this Intel for us. No, dude, no, get it in writing. You, know, you take that fucking thing. You know, I want that in my contract right here. <laughs> well Peace. said, man. Well, the article is American mercenaries were hired to assassinate politicians in the Middle East, uh, written by Aram Rostin for BuzzFeed. Check it out. It's like I said, I haven't read the whole thing. It's very in depth. I mean, this is like a small book here. The, the length of yeah, man. Article. Like I said, I mean, this guy locked in the story, I think, pretty good. And I don't have any firsthand uh, or, or se- even secondhand knowledge of this because it's not my story. I didn't work on this. So but it's well done, though, just from the little that I'm he he, he interviewed a number of people who are on this team and he has uh, drone footage. He has some documentation. So, I mean, he spent some time on it, obviously. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. Um and again, I'm just kind of like beside myself by some of the similarities to this book I wrote four years ago, um, you know, down to, um, 
you know, former dev group guys carrying hatchets out on mercenary operations. It's like down down to that like granular level of detail. I'm like, what the fuck, man? It's it's exactly the same kind of crap I wrote about in in this book. And I wish it had remained in a novel and it remained a work of fiction, but somebody's always dumb enough to actually do it. Yeah. Crazy stuff, man. Well, uh next episode Benedetta Argentieri, because I Am the Revolution is about to be in theaters. Well, so I, there's going to be a premiere in New York City. Yeah. I don't know if it's going to be on my, the uh, My wife's so. documentary, she just did a TED Talk in Milan. That as well, which um, we can talk about. You know, which is it's about, you know, amongst other things, it's about a, uh, a YPJ commander in Syria that she spent some time with. Um, but we'll talk about the other personalities in the documentary. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, we're going to do a premiere in, uh, in November here in November the city. November 15th. Yeah. I'll be there uh, as long as I'm invited to come. I'm, I'm I, excited I, I might, I might be able to hook you up. I, might, <laughs> I, would, I, I would hope so. I might be able to hook you up. So, yeah, Benny will be in next episode. Check out SoftRepRadio.com. Check out the Facebook page. We're now on Spotify. And the, uh, the new app, SoftRep Radio app, which has all the episodes uh, all the way back episodes that aren't on Apple Podcasts anymore as well. So back when we had Buzz Aldrin on, Diamond Dallas Page, all these crazy guests that we've had on from the past. So sweet. Appreciate you guys checking it out. And uh, as always, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. And we're out, guys. Hope you're checking out and uh, enjoying these videos we're doing as well. Listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Rep Radio.